We are into the second week of a new series we commenced last week, and the working title of this series is Unblemished. The focus for the next six weeks now is actually going to be the book of Malachi. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open up to Malachi chapter 1. If you're going, gee, that sounds a bit like foreign territory, it's the last book of the Old Testament. Uh, have a go at that. I'll give you time to find that, and we'll be looking at that for the next few weeks. So chapter 1 of Malachi is where we're going today. Last week, we set up the series with some background on the audience uh, of Malachi, and hopefully setting the scene just a little bit, and and uh, I'm hoping that you caught some of the language that I used in amongst that that kind of tied us into this. Um, commentators describe Israel as a bit of a church state, if you were. Uh, the mission that they had is not unlike what we have. It's, it's a, one of proclaiming the glory of God and demonstrating the values of His kingdom to the world around them. So as we explore the things that God examines in them, we can also examine ourselves uh, to a degree in light of the way um, we show the world and what the universal reign of God looks like. As God examines Israel, it's clear that he sees blemishes. Uh, the first one is what we looked at briefly last time. It was the inability to grasp or believe in God's love for them. And that 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 is Christianity 101 right there. If we walk in the in the disbelief that God actually loves us, then we are always going to be chasing our tail in faith. It's a, it's a revelation we need to get very early on in our faith walk, something we really need to make a conviction very early on. The big picture of God's love was on display all the time in Israel's history. Um, but it was admittedly coming in somewhat unpalatable ways for the people of God at that time. Um, and that there was some discipline involved, there'd been some exile as part of that journey, things like that. And Israel's getting a little bit uppity about it all because their immediate temporal needs are seemingly going unmet. The inability to see God's love means the inability to see the big picture of God's work in our lives. It also means we are stuck with the inability to communicate what God's love is to those around us, to the people we're designed, that we're supposed to reach. If we gauge God's love by our immediate needs and wants rather than the cross, our understanding and communication of God's love will always come up short. The fact is, and I said this last week, if God does nothing else for us between now and eternity, He has in fact still done enough. Because when it comes to love, the cross is more than enough to prove God's intentions and feelings towards us. So don't let humanistic feelings get in the way of facts. God's love is undeniable. We can completely count on Him, uh, and when He says this is how He regards us, He means it. That's what we sort of picked up from last week. Let's go into verse 6 today. Now, if you're following this on the screen, um, it's Australia Day, and yet Australians, Australia has become home to a number of, of, of cultural groups from all around the world. The nations, even if nations are closed to the gospel, the closed nations are coming to us. It's amazing to see what God is doing in our nation at this time with that. Uh, so the screen is going to reflect that. We have a 
strong Korean community here, and so the Burmese language will be there for them, and because of our African friends and neighbours here also, we have Swahili on screen as well. So that's what's going on. I'll go verse by verse on the screen, and um, if you're English-speaking, just look at the top one. So let's read this together, verse 6. A son honours his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honour due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altars. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it, saying the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the chief who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Now, last week's passage was a reminder to God's people about the covenant they were under. And this week, a loving God who set up a nation with a one-sided blood covenant now speaks about the relationship he wants with this covenant people that he loves. And it starts with the word father. God has this paternal outlook. And it's all through the Old Testament. Even while Israel was in slavery in Egypt, Exodus 4 gives us this evidence. He describes the nation of Israel, as I've said there, as his firstborn son. We see later that this paternal mindset is so powerful that God is actually willing to have Egypt lose their firstborn sons if his firstborn is not released. He also takes on the role of master to the people of Israel. As early as the wilderness time, they're instructed about this particular expression and this expectation. Deuteronomy 10. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve your Lord, the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and, to decree, and the decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. So we have father and we have master. Two key ways a people was being asked to relate to God all through its existence. In this passage, we have two more images to be reminded of. 
happen. In four chapters of prophetic text, we are going to read the words, Lord Almighty. Or in other translations, the Lord of hosts, a whopping 24 times. This short passage we just read is loaded with this phrase. In the Hebrew, this carries the idea of the all-powerful God as the head of the assembled heavenly army. And the other great image of God to note is found in verse 14. I am a great king. The expected mindset of God's people is abundantly clear in all this. Right? God has great paternal affection for his people. In his paternal affection, he received them and rejected others. We saw that in the first five verses. In his paternal affection, he defended them against the king of Egypt. He took from Pharaoh what Pharaoh tried to take from him. And since he initiated this fatherly relationship and Israel greatly benefited from this, he expected them to embrace the role of being his son. To look to him as their father and to be a privileged son in his presence. God was to be a master and Israel was therefore to be a servant. He was sovereign. He was in charge. The people would be servants of great worth and privilege in this arrangement. He would be a just and fair and honest and, and, and benevolent master. He had a will. He had a way. He had a, a purpose. He had a, a journey and a destination for his people. In Malachi's time, the world around Israel abounded in power and military might. But they felt like they were barely existing. Despite this appearance in the temporal, God is still fighting for them. And he says, I am your captain. I am your protector still, despite what they're seeing all around them at that time. They didn't need an assembled army to understand that they would be protected. They didn't need to have all their generals lined up. They didn't need a, 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 a show of power or a parade of missiles down the street to demonstrate who they were. They had God promising to be the captain of the Lord's host to protect them. In that time, Israel was merely permitted by others to inhabit their homeland and to have their religious freedom and to, to still offer to the Lord and to live under the covenant that they had in, Jesus, in the Lord, in God. But they were still under the rule of a Persian governor. They never got their autonomy back. Despite that earthly dynamic, Israel was to clearly understand that all earthly rule was nothing compared to the Lord. And his will, his purpose, his presence, his instruction was to be adhered to above any other name, any deity, king, army, or any other power. So God is father, master, captain, and king. That's the expected stance of God's people in 450-ish BC. Remains the expected stance of God's people in 2020. All these ideas are repeated in the New Testament. They're facilitated through Christ. But 
But this is not what God is seeing as he surveys his chosen people at that time. They clearly don't care for God's paternal affection. In fact, they're questioning it. How exactly have you loved us, God? Almost shaking their fist in doing so. They don't wish to serve him or honour him either. This is particularly and painfully clear in their behaviour and their attitude in their gathered expression of worship. Where God is wanting to see an expression of worship, he sees in its place contempt, dishonour, defilement, and a regard for immediate earthly standing rather than their standing with the Lord, with eternity. The law that Israel was following was handed to Moses from the Lord. In regards to sacrifices being made in the temple of God, we have clear instructions in Leviticus on how to go about it. We actually covered this a bit over a year ago. Leviticus 22, let me remind you, speak to Aaron and his sons, to all the Israelites, and say to them, if any of you, whether an Israelite or a foreigner residing in Israel, if any of you presents a gift for a burnt offering to the Lord, either to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering, you must present a male without defect from the cattle, the sheep, or goats in order that it may be accepted on your behalf. Do not bring anything with a defect because it will not be accepted on your behalf. When anyone brings from the herd or flock a fellowship offering to the Lord to fulfill a special vow or as a free will offering, it must be without defect or blemish to be acceptable. Do not offer to the Lord the blind, the injured, or the maimed, or anything with warts or festering or running sores. Do not place any of these on the altar as a food offering presented to the Lord. Did I go too far? Yeah, I did. Sorry. As part of Old Testament worship, there would be free will offerings, which were statements of thanks and praise, and sometimes for the completion of vows. There would be offerings made for sinful behavior. There would be fellowship offerings made, which would be offered at the temple, and part of it burned to ash, the other part made into a meal uh, to celebrate the reconciliation of God and man. This is just a few examples of animal offerings in effect at that time. The need for all of these were fulfilled in the sacrificial death of Christ. But if these things, as we understand, do point to Christ, there should be no surprise that anything offered in worship was to be the best possible quality for the offering to be accepted by God. This is now being apparently profaned, and the Lord is calling Israel out on this now. And we find here that the people are questioning God and his judgment. How exactly have we defiled you? Last week it was, how exactly have you loved us? Hmm? This time it's, how exactly have we defiled you? How are we showing contempt exactly, God? Apparently its leaders have no clue. The people are blinded by their complacency. The observation that the Lord is making here is addressing something more than what we see at first value. There's, there's, there's no way a clearly unsuitable animal is going to make it to the altar. You have to, you have to picture this. You've got Jerusalem as a city. There's a series of streets. You don't, don't exactly raise your cattle in the middle of the city, so they're brought in from a field outside the town. 
they're led through the street, led into a number of courtyards before finally getting taken to to a, a place where it would be offered on an altar. There has to be, to some degree, some apparent evidence that that thing's going to be passable by the time it gets there. People are going to see this thing all the way through. If it's look, I saw a YouTube clip the other day of a of, of a cow that had a nasty abscess, and they emptied almost into a forty-four gallon drum. The pus that come out of it, right? Some of those things can be really nasty. Something like that, clearly stinking, clearly infected. Clear, that sort of stuff wouldn't fly. If it had three legs, it's not going to make it. You know, it's going to you know awkwardly get to the temple. No. Those things are very clear, and the people would be questioning that. They would be looking at the letter of the law, going. Yeah, they're they're a no-brainer. Let's not get those things through. But there were other ways. And I think God is actually seeing below the surface of what we might be thinking here. Imagine this. Imagine being at the Jerusalem version of the Mount Gambia show. Imagine heading to the cattle section, the big pavilion Imagine a line of entrance and judges checking out every part of those animals. Imagine the swag of really impressive bulls lined up there. But then at the end of the day, the whole farming community is only talking about the prize winner. He's a big boy. He's got fantastic head carriage. He's got a long, muscular body. He's got really good proportions going on. The legs are sturdy as. They've gone over with a fine-tooth comb over that thing. There's no evidence whatsoever of hoof damage. It's complete in the way that matters to breeders, if you know what I mean. Simply put, he's a brute. He's awesome. Hands down, the winner on the day. And for the next few weeks and perhaps months, the whole region is talking about Farmer Joseph and the prize winner, Brutus the Big Beefer. A few years later, the call for sacrifice is made, and on this particular day, Farmer Joseph is seen bringing Brutus down the street of Jerusalem towards the temple complex. And the whole city is blown away by this. They know the value of that animal. They know it won prizes, so it has to be the best. The place is buzzing. Parents are recalling that show and the blue ribbon he won for the kids. The local paper is getting photos and taking interviews because they had more than three readers then. It's a spectacle and everyone is in huge admiration of Joseph's actions right now. But there's a dark secret going on. See, a week or so prior, Brutus was looking a bit lethargic. Wasn't moving around so much. He wasn't eating much. He wasn't strutting amongst the herd like he normally did. He's only a young animal, so Joseph calls the vet. The vet takes it once over and goes, man, your, your cow, Brutus here, has got mad cow disease. The prize winner is now no longer for this, no, not long for this planet. The vet correctly points out that Brutus really shouldn't end up as I feel it now. So we probably have to look at putting him down, you know. Well, to Joseph, that suddenly sounds like a waste. 
You put a lot of work in that animal. And the temple sacrifice is coming up. Kind of looks okay. It looks sturdy. You can walk in. Two birds, one stone. Despite what he knows, he goes ahead with the sacrifice. Joseph gets celebrated as a pious man. The priests accept him with joy, without question. The people stand amazed at the apparent depth of sacrifice. Everybody thinks all is well. The best was offered. But God knows otherwise. And he says to Israel here, you come with the intent of worshipping me and celebrating who you are as my son and my servant. You come to worship the Lord of hosts and declare your thankfulness and make good on the vows you make. You're here to bring offerings to atone for your sins and seek and celebrate the resulting reconciliation with me. And you plan to accomplish such things with that. The people go, how exactly is that defiled? And God's going, no, 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 don't you know? The heart of this is dark. I'm not accepting that. I'm not pleased. Why bother doing this if you can't bring your best to the table? You may as well close the doors and stop trying. Sure, the, the basic gist here is that Israel is going through the motions of gathered worship and they're cheapening the process. When it came to God, they refused to be their best or give their best. And every time, they, every time they came with this brand of worship, they actually went home unchanged in the eyes of God. In fact, the Lord calls them cheats and cursed for the attitude that they bring. And the nail on a spiritual coffin was the attitude they had to earthly rule rather than God's sovereign rule. There was no way on earth they would try to do that sort of thing with their Persian governor. Imagine they butchered Brutus and fed the Persian governor I fill it. Imagine what that would do to the Persian governor. Make him sick, right? Imagine the harm it would do. Imagine you know, calling a banquet and getting all the, the Persian officials trying to, 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 you know, to keep them in favor, to keep them happy with Israel and go, here, this is to appease you. This is to make you feel like we welcome you. This is so that we can keep all the things we want. Here, enjoy Brutus. God goes, try offering your, 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 um, your governor that. See, their enemy was getting more attention and care than their God. The people in earthly power were getting more obedience, honor, respect than their heavenly father, master, captain, and king. From verse 11 on, we see a significant challenge from the Lord. My name will be great among the nations. There will be true worship. The world is going to know me. The world is going to know, magnify this God. Will it happen because of you, the people of God, and the example you set, or will it happen in spite of you? That's what we're reading here in Malachi. It's a sharp challenge. See, the second blemish in God's people in 450 BC is this. They have no revelation of God's sovereignty. And as a result, they have no revelation of their relationship with him or their response to him in worship. You know, how, the, how to respond to him in light of this. 
and their worship is their key indicator of this. Yeah, in today's Western church, there's a bit of risk of repeating history. We serve many masters, many fathers, many kings in life. But the greatest of all these is supposed to be the Lord Almighty. And that's not always the case. There's the worship of sports. There's the worship of family. The worship of career and status. The worship of leisure and entertainment. The worship of our earthly rights. These all compete with the worship of the Lord. And in the West, we don't just do that stuff or give attention to it. We worship it. Put 100,000 people in a football field, around a football game. You know, it's more than just a little bit of acknowledgement going on there, you know. Everyone's sold out in one eye for the next three hours. Go to an entertainment venue, go to a rock concert, and everybody raises their hands and behaves in the most unabandoned way. And God goes, why can't you be like that towards me? When we dilute our worship so thinly, the stuff we offer to the Lord can be far less than what our Lord of hosts and great King calls for and deserves. It can look good on the surface, but below it can be distorted and diseased and become unacceptable in the eyes of God. We can fill pews in churches. But we can have people occupying seats who are just not disciples of Jesus. Not Christians. Because when it comes to the crunch, Jesus is simply not Master, Captain, King or Lord. Everything else is. To these people, the Lord says, why even be here going through the motions if you want to cheat at being a believer? To the priests and the leaders of the church nation, the Lord says this, why open the doors? Why light the fires? Why prepare the altars? Why facilitate that sort of faith? Our Lord deserves more. Calls for more, rightly so. Through the ministry of the Spirit this morning, I feel it's appropriate to examine from time to time the nature of our worship. When you consider the frequency that Israel brought their stuff to the temple and interacted with the Lord, you see many times throughout the course of a year in a cycle where they would do that. Scripture tells us that worship is both a focused action, like what we've hopefully done this morning and will continue, as well as a lifestyle that we adhere to. Everything we do as believers features an element of worship to it, simply because in all things we are doing them to honour God first. So as we consider those expressions, do we bring a cheapened expression of that, or do we bring our best? It has nothing to do with how it looks to everyone else. It's not about looking the part here. It has everything to do with what God sees in the depths of our being. When he weighs up our motives, when he weighs up what is actually driving us to bring these things before him. To act the way we do, to behave the way we do. 
So in all things, in this lifestyle of worship that we live by, is there a sense of worth in what we bring? Is it costing us something? Is it coming out of us without spot or blemish? Or is it being diluted with all sorts of cares and focuses and even allegiances and sometimes worship of other things? Did we come here today singing in submission and awe in the presence of our almighty God? Or did the week ahead consume our thoughts more? Are we more concerned with authorities that we see rather than the one we don't? Do we render to Caesar more than we render to God? Do we pander to earthly rule rather than live to please the king of our life? Now, this isn't even Israel's lowest point yet. Eventually, they would outrightly reject God as king. We see this at the trial of Jesus before Pilate. What was the nail on the coffin? No king over here but Caesar, sir. But for the church, it's clear that Jesus wants our all. Romans 12 calls us to live our lives as living sacrifices. Constantly bringing an unblemished sacrificial life before the Lord. Considering this the least we can do to worship our King who is Christ. The unblemished way is in all things allowing Christ to be God, Captain, King, and Lord of our lives. To walk in the clear revelation that Jesus alone is sovereign. A fitting challenge given the patriotism that surrounds us right now in our national day. A lady who sits on a throne in Britain is actually not my sovereign. The one that that lady who sits on a throne in Britain bows her knee to is my sovereign. It's to walk in a sound understanding of the relationship we have with God. With this understanding evident in the things we call worship in life. So my question is, are we seeing elements of a blemish in us? Have we caved into the what people see as what is reality? Or have we, have we ignored the state of our hearts when we come into things of worship? Have we made other things higher in our priorities? Have we deified other things that have no place being there? Have we acknowledged an authority higher than the Lord in some way and elevated things higher than Jesus? Is Jesus getting the best of our worship? Does the Spirit need to do some work in us today? Is this a blemish that needs some healing and attention in the hands of the Lord this morning? I'm going to give us space now to pause, to ponder. Would you bow your heads? And let's consider what the Lord might say to us in this time.